So we are in, again, 2 Corinthians, and I'm just going to do the first six verses. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that's at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So this is approximately one year after Paul's first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. And it's approximately 56 AD. And in his first letter, the, the main theme of that first letter was unity within the church, that they all be united and of the same mind. He did give some defense for his role as an apostle. It seems the attacks on his apostleship, though, continued after that. And so in this letter, he continues to defend that calling that God gave him, uh, that, uh, that Jesus gave him through Ananias in Damascus. And he encourages Corinthians to be united with him in his ministry. Corinth was a really unique city. It was uh, a sports and entertainment culture. Caesar had reinstituted the Isthmian Games in Corinth, uh, second only to the Olympics. The city's theater held 18,000 people, and the concert hall could seat 3,000. Travel, tourism, sex, and religious pluralism were all woven together in Corinth's new culture. And significantly, while Nero never visited Athens or Sparta, he sent, spent considerable time in Corinth, enjoying the adulation of its voluptuous palace. And the similarities to Western culture today are so striking that California pastor Ray Steadman used to call these letters to the Corinthians the first and second Californians. Like California, it's a melting pot of cultures. It was a place where people could make a name for themselves. So the content of this second letter to the Corinthians is completely contrary to the culture of Corinth. Over and over, it's going to declare that God is proclaimed through the weakness of man. It tells us that God uses suffering to humble his messengers and make their message even more powerful. If they dis were discounting Paul because of his weaknesses, Paul's answer was that this is the way that God gets all the glory. 
The world boasts in health and wealth and fame, but that's the power of man. God uses weak and broken things. They don't make headlines, but they instigate the transformation of souls that affect entire nations. Paul, with the help of Timothy, Aquila, and Priscilla, had made an inroad into this city, establishing a church there. But about three years later, he sent Timothy to prepare the church for an offering for the poor, but Timothy encountered resistance to Paul's ministry, probably the work of Paul's enemies in Jerusalem. Paul decided that he had to go there and see it for himself, and he described it as a painful visit in this second letter, chapter 2, verse 1. His apostleship was put into question. If he was an apostle, why was he suffering so much? Why was he not more eloquent? Why didn't he talk about the miracles and calling? Why did he refuse to accept payment for his preaching? And where were the letters of recommendation? And on and on, doubts had been sown by Paul's detractors. And that gave the detractors opportunity to teach a different gospel. Nothing is more painful to a pastor than to see wolves sneak their way into the flock and turn some from simple truth of the all-sufficiency of Christ. After returning to Ephesus, he wrote the first letter calling for repentance. The Holy Spirit worked a wonder and restored the Corinthian church, but not everyone was on board. And then planning on a third visit, Paul wrote this letter that we've begun to study. And somewhere in between, there was a second letter that has disappeared. And it's referred to as the, the harsh or the stern or the disciplinary letter. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. An apostle, I know we've gone over this before, but I just want to reiterate some of it. An apostle of Christ Jesus, it's interesting that he didn't use Jesus Christ because in using Christ Jesus, he's saying he is God's appointed representative of God's official representative, Christ Jesus. Therefore, to ignore Paul's instruction is to ignore God's instruction. Called by the will of God is a reminder to the church that he didn't choose to be an apostle. Rather, God chose him. He was on his way to persecute Christians when God arrested him. There was nothing in it for him. What motivation could his detractors point to? He paid his own way working with his hands. He gave up a successful religious career and became an enemy of those who previously had honored him. And now he is the persecuted. It's not pride that motivates him to defend his calling. It's faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel. And it was written from Timothy, our brother, whom Paul met in Lystra, and where Timothy was converted to the faith and became a disciple of Paul. He became such a faithful assistant that Paul could say there was no one like him in his concern for the church. And Paul referred to his service as that of a son to a father. 
to the church of God that is in Corinth. Paul has declared his authority, but here he declares the exalted position of the believers in Corinth. Despite all the corrections and all the rebukes that Paul's write to them, they are those who are called out from the world to be an assembly of God. They are God's dwelling place in the city of Corinth. Paul adds that the letter is to all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Now, saints means sanctified ones. Church implies the gathering of the sanctified ones. And it's not based on our perfection or our performance, but upon our faith in Jesus as our Savior. And as such, the letter is to us as well. We're most likely as guilty of sin as those in the church of Corinth, and yet God sees us as saints. His dwelling place in our city because of the righteousness that Jesus has merited on our behalf and his payment for our sins. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans used to, to greet one another with karen, meaning peace to you. Uh, it's our equivalent of hello. But Paul replaced the Greek with uh, the Roman expression with the Greek word for grace, charis. Grace is the greatest need of mankind. And everybody said, amen. Since we have all sinned, we all need the grace of God to draw us to redemption, merited for us on the cross of Christ. Grace convicts of sin. It's the grace of God that calls us to serve our Lord, an undeserved honor. It's grace that rewards us for our faithfulness. We need grace more than we need the air we breathe. When you've received the grace of God, you have the peace of God, his shalom. The Hebrew idea isn't just calm, but to be blessed in every good thing. The Father is the giver of all good things, and they come to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus' name means Yahweh's salvation. That's the name we were shouting a minute ago. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul addresses comfort and suffering more than any other author of Scripture. In verses 3 to 7, Paul's going to use the word for comfort and in, in the noun and verb form 10 times, making this the most important passage in Scripture on comfort. Verse 3 is an intentional reworking of a synagogue prayer. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. So Paul's reinforcing the truth that the God of the patriarchs is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses the same reworked Jewish prayer in the beginning of Romans and the letter to the Ephesians, and Peter uses it in his first letter. It was a way of countering Judaizers, who he calls false prophets, later false apostles later in this letter. The synagogue prayer of Paul's day 
describe God as the Father of mercies. But here, Paul enlarges it to include, and the God of all comfort. The first of the ten references to comfort contained in this short paragraph, Paul's intentionality is immense. Chapters 40 to 66 of Isaiah repeatedly speak of comfort and consolation of the Messianic age. Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And the final chapter, 66, says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So when Christ came, the devout, including Simeon and Annas, Anna, were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They saw the Isaiah prophecies, so they were waiting for this consolation to come. It was and is through Christ that the comfort of God the Father comes to us. When Simeon and Anna looked on that little baby, they were looking at the source of salvation and comfort. The word Paul uses for comfort in this passage means to stand by someone to encourage them, to strengthen them as they go through a time of testing. It's not the mushy kind of comfort we think of today, but engenders strength and courage to endure. Indeed, as he will share in verses 8 through 11, that he has recently been delivered from a deadly peril. He was also comforted by the news of Titus that, that he brought from the church in Corinth, for they had repented on receiving that harsh letter from the Apostle Paul. Verse 3 is Paul's erupting in praise how, for how God has delivered him and for the blessed change in the church of Corinth. And nevertheless, Paul's going to spend a good deal of this letter defending his apostleship. When we have the grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus, we too can bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because we experience God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The mercy we receive because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross is the greatest and most uh, needed mercy in all our lives, of course. But we too can know the God of all comfort who stands by us to strengthen us as we go through suffering and testing that we all experience. It makes you wonder how those who don't know Christ get through the hardships of Christ, of, of inevitable hardships of life. That's one reason that we wanna share Christ with them. We want them to know the comfort that we experience as well. Verse four, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. As I was studying this passage, I, I heard a testimony of, of someone who'd been through some really painful things. They hadn't shared it with anybody before in their life. And God just so orchestrated that they felt comfortable sharing the, the tragedy with me. And they were on my mind, and I, I was listening to the radio the next day, 
And I was going through something too, not nearly as bad as they were, but the song just spoke to the need in my heart. And it was the Holy Spirit comforting me through the songwriter's words that God had probably used to comfort him in his trials. And so because it so comforted me, I sent it on to them in their comfort. Do you see what's happening? We comfort others with the comfort we are comforted from God. And when we're comforted, it's so that we can pass it on to somebody else who's going through a trial, who is in that need. And we comfort, it goes through, you know, step after step, after, from person to person to person as we pass around that comfort we receive from God. Maybe it's a song, maybe it's a scripture, maybe it's just what the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart. But you know it's from God and it's so soothing and comforting and, and such a relief that you wanna share it with others, especially in their trial. You know, um, I am more open to the love and grace of God, more useful because I have been broken over my own failures, by family tragedy, by pain in my heart. And sometimes people say I'm humble and I cringe because I know the selfishness that's in my own heart. And I know the pain that I've caused some people and the revelation of my selfishness just goes deeper and deeper with time. And yet the fact that I'm forgiven and considered righteous because of what Jesus has done for me comforts and encourages me. The Apostle Paul was afflicted to a degree few of us will ever experience. Lashed five times, his back must have been one giant scar. He was stoned and left for dead, floating in the sea like a piece of driftwood three different times, forsaken by his companions, attacked and accused by his own people, in hunger and thirst, sleepless nights and other dangers, and yet through it all, even when despairing of life itself, the comfort of God came through and strengthened and upheld him. That was why he could send these words of comfort to the Corinthians. When we teach what we have not experienced, it carries little weight. But when it comes out of personal experience, the ring of authenticity reaches our hearts for everyone that's open to hear it. Verse five, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In Colossians 1.24, Paul wrote, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of, the, of his body, that is, the church. I'll never forget one time in Japan, a missionary came up to me and said, What does this mean? To fill up the, the suffering, of the lack in Christ's afflictions, what does that mean? And I, I told him, I don't know, I, verse that didn't that kind of fit, but not really. But it made me start thinking about this and trying to understand what this verse is telling us. And I concluded that it has nothing to do with Jesus' atoning death. That's completely sufficient. We don't add anything to that. 
but rather what his body, the church, endures to advance the kingdom of God in the world ruled by Satan. Jesus referred to him as Satan, as the prince or ruler of this world. We suffer for one another and with one another, and they are his sufferings because he's in us and he feels our suffering with us. C.S. Lewis solemnized this truth in an epitaph to the problem of pain, the, the book he wrote. He quotes George MacDonald. The Son of God suffered unto the death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. In this respect, Paul's prayer in Philippians 3, 10, and 11 is so right, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this is what verse 5 is addressing. The church's suffering is Christ's suffering because we are his body. As the suffering of some of us overflows into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, so the comfort overflows to meet the need as well. In other words, the more we suffer to live out a righteous life in this fallen world, the more abundantly we share in comfort that God gives. We receive comfort from the family of God who've gone through the same kind of suffering, which is comfort from God. Often he comforts us directly, giving us that song I mentioned earlier or the words of scripture, and then we share it with others who are suffering in a similar way. In fact, um, I, just, I shared with how that, that just recently happened to me. Paul could have lived out his life as a respected Pharisee with very little suffering. No one gets away through this life without some suffering, but he could have had much less suffering. Remember when he was converted, that God sent Ananias to him, and the last thing God said to Ananias was, um, he will, he will, he, something like he will see how much suffering he will need to go through for me. After that great calling to be an apostle to the, to the Gentiles, it follows by that verse, that phrase of how much suffering he would have to endure for Christ. Paul could have lived out that respected life, but he chose to follow Christ. And in the process, he shares in Jesus' suffering, but he also shares in his comfort. The same choice is presented to us on various occasions. We can conform to the world or, or we can follow Jesus and share in his afflictions and in his overflowing comfort. But I would add that even the most glamorous lives in this world often hide a deep pain that receives little or no comfort. And that's why the rate of drug addiction and suicide is so high among people the world looks up to. Verse six, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Suffering and affliction are just a part of life in this fallen world, and believers are not exempt, though some so-called Christians claim otherwise. 
The difference between the believer's suffering, though, and the suffering of the unbeliever is spelled out here by Paul. Our suffering is met with the comfort that comes from God. It has the purpose of being able to relate to others in their suffering and to share the comfort that we have received from God. And this changes our outlook and attitude toward the suffering that we endure. We know there's a greater purpose, even when we can't see it or understand it. We experience that comfort and relate to others in their affliction when we patiently endure. If we lose hope, if we stop trusting in the outcome described here, we refuse the comfort that comes from God. Then it's our own fault for wallowing in our own pity. That does nothing but make us more miserable and reveals we are not clinging to the promises of God. And then the world sees no difference in us. To patiently endure. It's one of my favorite Greek words, hupomone. It's to bear up under the burden until it is lifted. One translator says the biblical use of the word is a constancy in desire that overcomes the trial of waiting. A soul attitude that must struggle to persevere. A waiting that's determined and victorious because it trusts in God. We look to God and his comfort, which often comes through others who have suffered, which helps us to patiently endure. And then, whether the burden's lifted or not, we become encouragers who help others to patiently endure. Remember that James says that we could, should consider it all joy when we face various trials that test our faith, it's through them that endurance is learned. And the effect of endurance is spiritual maturity. If you really want to know how spiritually mature you are, look how you deal with the trials that God allows to come your way. Do you murmur and complain? Do you despair and think there was no purpose for the trial? Or did you patiently endure if you're like me, there's times you do pretty well by the grace of God and other times when you're ready to throw in the towel. If trials don't stretch our faith, though, they're really not accomplishing a whole lot. Also, remember that sufferings, according to verse 5, are sharing in Christ's sufferings with the promise that through Christ we will share abundantly in comfort also. If some Corinthians disparaged Paul because of his abundant suffering, they were forgetting that we are followers of the Christ who suffered so much for us. So much for the better roses Christianity. We live in a fallen world among fallen people. The message of the freedom of the that gospel brings will often stir up animosity towards us who are the messengers. But don't be surprised by fierce opposition. The scripture warns us that that's normal. In fact, in Acts 14, it says, we shall through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. These verses outline four reasons why God allows suffering in the lives of believers. Each situation we encounter has its own reasons, but God gives us four that turn us away from self-pity and isolation. The first is consolation or comfort. 
What we do with suffering is what makes the difference. We can use our suffering to comfort others who are suffering. We cannot truly relate to someone going through something we haven't experienced. I've never lost a child, but some of you have, and you can better relate and help someone else who has just lost a child. I can comfort someone whose father took their life when they were young, or someone who was in a cult, or who had a parent with Alzheimer's, or had friends betray them. Each of us has suffered and can use that suffering to comfort others with the similar suffering, with the comfort that we received from God when we went through it. Paul writes here that it is also for salvation. Paul was enduring all he went through to proclaim the gospel that others be saved. The salvation of the lost is a reason to endure. And part of our witness is how God works through us despite our suffering. Everything is, if everything was wonderful in your life, it could give others an excuse to say, well, sure, he believes in God because life's easy for him. But when you share from your weakness, the response is more likely to be, if he believes despite his suffering, it must be real. God uses suffering in our lives to teach us to endure. Trees grow strong because of the wind. They sink the roots deep. Butterflies have the blood pushed into their wings through that struggle to push themselves out of the cocoon, and that enables them to fly. Every trial we endure prepares us for the next and the more difficult one. It's like exercise that builds muscle as we increase the resistance. Our endurance in trials is also a testimony to unbelievers. And the final reason is that our suffering helps us share with the body. We see a need and we try to help the need be met. We sympathize and share our story in verses that helped us and others do the same with us. This is the interdependence that would not be deep, deep and rich unless we suffer. We weep with those who weep. We help one another not to become discouraged or apathetic, but to see how God is working in and through the suffering. We share the comfort that helps us bear up under our suffering. Now you might think, gee, pastor, thanks for the really encouraging message that we're all gonna suffer. <laughs> but remember, suffering is a result of sin in the world. All people suffer. The difference is that we have the comfort of God that often comes through our brothers and sisters who have endured a similar suffering. And if your aim is to grow spiritually, then as James said, you can rejoice when those trials come. They mature us for the glory of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we're here, for the glory of God. Solo Deo Gloria. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction.